Welcome to this series of short podcasts about the stories of the Tudors. My name's Tony Riches and I'm a historical fiction author from Pembrokeshire in Wales and I'm a specialist in the history of the early Tudors. I've written three books which feature Henry VIII from his birth at Greenwich Palace on the 28th of June 1491 right through to his middle age. But I've never written a book about Henry VIII I think it's been done so much. I'd rather look at the people that surrounded him. But I was recently interviewed by Tudor specialist and author Natalie Grinager and asked to describe King Henry VIII in one word. I said tyrant without thinking about it, a huge amount. And uh, that made me think. So in this podcast, I'll be trying to see behind the popular image of Henry. And of course... He's best known for his uh, six wives, but I'll be talking about them another time because this time I'd like to consider what have made him such a tyrant over his 38-year reign. The immediately recognisable portraits by Holbein of King Henry VIII show him as a, a powerful man, perhaps overweight, and uh, it's easy to forget that he was once a playful renaissance prince admired for his good looks and he was actually clean shaven for most of his uh, youth and henry followed his maternal grandfather Uh, he was tall for his time uh, about six foot three and he had an athletic build thanks to his love of jousting and hunting and playing tennis the early form of tennis and he, it was said that he could shoot an arrow further than many of the full-time archers and could keep dancing long after everyone else was completely exhausted. And his early years were spent in the nursery at Eltham Palace. And it's quite easy to imagine how, as the only boy surrounded by women, he would have easily been spoilt and indulged Um, He was known as my Lord Harry and he had the best tutors, uh, notably the poet and author John Skelton, who's famous for writing poems praising himself. And uh, Skelton wrote a a handbook of princely behaviour for Henry VIII, uh, which was called The Speculum Principis, or A First Mirror. And this was full of helpful advice for the young Henry, including uh, some of the uh, we can smile at with the benefit of hindsight. Above all, loathe gluttony was one of his warnings. And another one was choose a wife for yourself and prize her always and uniquely. And um, it's interesting to think uh, to what extent uh, Skelton influenced 
the young Henry and uh, shaped his thinking. Because people generally tend to forget that he was Henry was married to Catherine of Aragon for 22 years, which is longer than his five other wives all put together. And um, poor Catherine's marriage to him is, is, seems to be uh, quickly forgotten in the, the rush to look at the others. But Henry became fluent uh, in at least three languages and he had an impressive knowledge that spanned everything from theology to medicine. He used to concoct his own cures for things and um, get involved in long debates about theology. And he was also the first King of England to write and publish his own book. And in 1521, he published a book which he called The Defence of the Seven Sacraments. This was his response to Martin Luther's challenging the Pope's authority with his 95 Theses. And uh, it was 30,000 words long and became a bestseller. So um, most people don't think of Henry VIII as a best-selling author, but the Pope did because he was so impressed that he awarded Henry the title Defender of the Faith, uh, which he was quite proud of, actually, and um, would remind people of that whenever they questioned his commitment. It's also important to remember that he was never properly prepared for the throne in that his older brother Arthur should have succeeded the throne on his father's death. He died in 1502 at Ludlow Castle from the sweating sickness, it's thought, when he was 15, leaving Henry as the only male heir. And of course this was compounded by the death of Henry's mother on her birthday um, the following February and David Starkey historian suggests uh, that the similarities in their handwriting show that Henry's mother might have been the one who taught him to read and write obviously Henry's handwriting is uh, much kind of stronger than Elizabeth of York's but it shares the same characteristics which suggests um, a particular closeness which he frankly didn't have with his father and there's a in the National Library of Wales there's a, a late 15th century illuminated manuscript it's actually written in medieval French called the Vaux Passionale and it's thought to show the young Prince Henry grieving at his mother's bedside and if it's true that this grieving little boy heartbroken for his mother is Henry it does say something about his silence on the subject uh, which he he, re he kept silent for several many years until he wrote to Erasmus about learning of the death of the King of Castile and he wrote Never since the death of my dearest mother has there come to me more hateful intelligence. Your letter seemed to tear open the wound to which time has brought insensibility. I'd just like to pause here for a moment to comment on something that struck me when I was doing my research on the remarkable similarities between Henry or Prince Harry as he was known and his modern namesake. When you think about it, uh, both have a, a flawed relationship with their fathers. 
so were very much influenced by their mothers. And in both cases, their mothers died suddenly uh, when Henry VIII was 11 and when the current Prince Harry was 12. Both are red-haired over six feet tall and more athletic and frankly uh, more popular with the people than their more serious brothers and neither expected to become king of england and i i just think that's uh, such a, a combination of coincidences even though they're not um, connected by blood it's quite intriguing anyway to return to henry's story after the death of his brother and his mother, uh, it seems that his father became very overprotective. And um, it was typical of Henry VII. He, he liked to, he was controlled things, and he certainly controlled the young Henry. And the Spanish reported, he is never permitted to go out of the palace except for exercise through a private door leading to the park. At these times, he is surrounded by those persons especially appointed by the king as his tutors and companions, and no one else on his life dare approach him. He takes his meals alone and spends most of the day in his own room, which has no other entrance than through the king's bedchamber. He is in complete subjection to his father and grandmother, that be Margaret of Beaufort, and never opens his mouth in public except to answer a question from one of them. It's possible that the death of his brother Arthur at the age of 15 and this overprotection from his father might have led to Henry suffering from a form of hypochondria because his fear of illness, of catching in particular the sweating sickness, was so great that he asked his physicians to examine him every morning of his life and he never um, would allow anybody that suffered illness in his presence if he could avoid it. In fact, he, he went to great lengths to avoid them, travelling halfway across the country sometimes. And uh, he tried to learn as much as he could about the medicine of the day and made his own remedies uh, from a secret cabinet of ingredients that he kept in his private apartments. And um, he had a terrible fear of the plague and the sweating sickness. We have to remember both of these were rife in England at its time, and particularly in London, where he spent a lot of his time. So um, when a bout of the sweating sickness arrived in London in uh, 1517, uh, Henry left the city for a full year and was hardly seen at all. His first serious accident happened in 1524 when Charles Brandon, who is the subject of my next book, was chosen to joust against the king. Now, Henry was very proud of the armour he was wearing because it was of his own design and... Um, Brandon was wearing a jousting helmet which really obstructed his vision. It is recorded that he could hardly see what was going on, uh, which isn't very good for somebody that's carrying a lance and charging at the king. But it, it said that Henry failed to lower the visor on his own helmet and uh, Brandon's lance, which was designed to shatter on impact, 
entered the inside of the king's helmet and shattered just above the king's right eye, um, sending splinters everywhere. And of course, uh, all the courtiers thought that was the end of the king and probably the end of Charles Brandon as well. But Henry, in typical style, uh, immediately forgave Brandon. And it's recorded that he um, called his armourers and put all of his pieces together. That means uh, put on his armour again that probably had been taken off. And he took a spear, which is a, a, a jousting lance, and ran six courses very well, uh, by which all men might perceive that he had no hurt. And it's, it's recorded, this was a great joy and comfort to all his subjects there present. It was particularly a, a great joy and comfort to Charles Brandon, who at the time swore that he would never joust against the king again. And um, after this incident, though, it's, it is a case that Henry VIII suffered from migraine headaches and insomnia, possibly problems with his memory, uh, but most worrying of all is an a, apparent inability to control his impulsive behaviour. He always was impulsive, but uh, from then on, it seems from the court records that he could be particularly impulsive. Interestingly, it was also reported that he was absent from court uh, with what seems to have been a leg ulcer soon after, after the accident. Now, uh, people have theorised that this might have been caused by the fashion for wearing a tight garter on his leg to show off the calf muscle and uh, of course they didn't really understand what to do to cure it but the changeability of Henry caused constant anxiety for his courtiers and the ambassadors that always seem to be present and it's their records which um, add a bit of colour to the otherwise quite um, straightforward court records. They note his unpredictability and the way that um, he could often become furious over the least thing and the reasons for his anger were rarely obvious to his ministers and advisers. Uh, interestingly, I found something when I was looking at the work of John Skelton uh, sadly most of his books haven't survived but um, amongst the other advice there's an advice to um, take care about heeding the advice of ministers and advisers because uh, they don't always know for the best which I thought was an interesting one but sadly Henry began to suffer from bouts of depression and what they called self-pity which um, and gloom and all of these things uh, these days would be diagnosed as um, various forms of mental health problems I think but it was another jousting accident which led to his permanent leg injury and prevented him from exercising and it's after then that he, he put on weight and the accident happened at a, a grand tournament at Greenwich Palace on the 24th of January 1536. Now Henry was 44 then in full armour and he was thrown from his horse which that would have been bad enough but then the horse fell on top of him and 
for most people that would have been the end because uh, you can imagine the after in a, the the hectic confusion of a tournament a sudden silence uh, as everybody realizes what's happened and um, they did think he was not going to recover from that it, there's various reports and it said that the fall left him speechless for two hours and Anne Boleyn uh, received a message that he would die and she says that the the shock of that news caused her to miscarry the child she was expecting which sadly was a male and it's after this that Henry said uh, they would never have male children together and began to turn against her and six months after that Anne had been executed and Henry married the third of his six wives Jane Seymour but although he recovered um, that was the end of his jousting career and of course uh, we can't be sure but it may have caused some kind of brain injury which or which brought on his personality change and began to make him into the tyrant that I described him as and interestingly um, historian Tracy Borman who's the joint chief curator at uh, historic royal palaces says that the idea that the king was knocked unconscious for two hours comes from a report by a foreign ambassador who was actually in a different country at the time so none of the eyewitnesses mention anything of the sort and i think like with a lot of things it's kind of entered the mythology of henry the eighth and uh, we need to at least bear in mind that it could have been a, a much lesser injury and not really quite the turning point in his life that most people make it but i read a report by a, a neurospecialist and he said that even five minutes of unconsciousness is considered to be major trauma today so it is very possible that henry suffered some kind of brain injury which might have led to the personality change the other thing is we shouldn't underestimate what it must have been like for him to have had the aggravated leg problems which really plagued him for the rest of his life. Henry's physicians tried everything to cure his increasingly painful ulcerated wounds and you know their idea of cures ranged from keeping the wound constantly open which of course meant open to further infection to using potions made of worms and wine. Uh, I don't think I'd fancy that myself. So it's little wonder that far from improving, the king was in constant worsening pain from that time. And that is enough to count for his increasingly foul temper. And what's beyond doubt is that uh, the end of jousting combined with his leg ulcers uh, and, and restricted movement really did lead to him uh, putting on weight. I mean, he he had a reputation for a large appetite. Where these there are records of these grand banquets with more courses than you can count. But one of his surviving suits of armour, which is displayed at the Tower of London, has got a waist size of 132 centimetres, which is about 52 inches. And we know from the records that he would often eat a dozen courses at mealtimes 
things like um, chicken and lamb pork rabbits swans peacocks venison uh, all very rich foods and um, he drank it said 70 pints of ale a week um, as well as um, innumerable glasses of sweet red wine so if you imagine anybody these days uh, that that drank 70 pints of ale a week uh, they would probably suffer some kind of consequences i remember <laughs> there's a one of my favorite authors is cj sampson in one of his books he describes how uh shard lake is present when the king had to be winched up and down stairs on a special engine um with chains uh, which was like the tudor equivalent of a wheelchair and it's not really surprising that he could be quite violent and lash out against his courtiers who were mostly young fit men and um, he might have been a bit envious of them by the time of his death in 1547 at the age of 56 um, henry's thought to have weighed about 28 stone and um, interestingly he as you might know he's buried under the aisle of the choir of st george's chapel and was therefore present at the current prince had his harry's wedding on the 19th of may finally i just like to round off uh, by reminding people that henry VIII didn't write green sleeves which is the one fact that most people seem to know about him um, but he was skilled at playing the lute and the recorder and the records show he owned 78 flutes and five sets of bagpipes and a harpsichord and he did compose a number of popular musical pieces including two of my own Tudor favourites Helas Madame which starts this podcast and Pastime with Good Company which is featured in a lively rendition at the end of this podcast by the New World Relations Band. The Tudor Trilogy is available from Amazon and links to all of my books can be found on my website at tonyriches.com. Thank you for listening. Mirth 
and play. 